Thank you, Pete. Let's stand together. King Jesus, here we are. We're not just standing in a church service, we're standing in our stories. And we're not just standing in our individual stories, we're standing in the midst of the story of Northland. And you're the head of our church. And our feet are standing at the beginning of a new path that continues what you've been doing, but takes us into a new season. And so we're here to listen. And I realize we're all over the map. Some of us aren't yet followers of yours, but we're investigating, maybe kicking the tires and uh, wondering even if the gospel is true. Others have embraced that, but are not sure about Northland or uh, some are sure about North, but they have a lot of stuff going on in their own particular journey, maybe a crisis even this morning. Yet you've assembled us all here and online for a very distinct purpose, and that's to speak into us. To speak into us, not just for us to receive, but for us to steward the hope of the gospel. To speak into us, not just as spectators, but participants, men and women who are wanting to link arms regarding our corporate voice in this community that would lead to an echo around the world. So Holy Spirit, do what you called us here to do. I'll listen along with my friends. And I ask this in the name of the one who is our centerpiece our cornerstone, our way, our truth, our life. King Jesus, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So as I mentioned today, building on the background that Vernon gave us last week, we're going to do an overview. Then next week, we'll start going. I'll be back next week, and we're going to start going through paragraph by paragraph. To prepare for that, you can read verses 1 through 11 sometime this week more than once, but you'll read the whole book at least once, right? Yeah. And what I want to do today is give you some hooks that you can use in that overview as you read the book. The title for today that you might have noticed is called Whistling in the Dark. It embraces some of what I was referring to other during this season for us as a church at Northland. It's important to be honest about how critical the situation is, but also the, how exciting the opportunity is. To do just one of those takes us out of balance. If I just engage with the critical situation, it can move me into cynicism and uh, kind of disengagement. If I only engage, engage with the, the the opportunity, it can lead me down blind optimism. The gospel is not about blind optimism, nor is it about cynicism. The gospel embraces that which is difficult and embraces the hope that we taste in the midst of the difficulty. We whistle in the midst of the darkness is what's behind that. It's what Philippians is about. I, I need to ask, though, as just as we're getting started, we got some whistlers here. I need a whistling lesson. And when I say a whistler, I'm talking about th this number where you, you can do this or this or this. Uh, got some? Let me hear them first. Whoa. Okay. 
That's really de depressing because I cannot do that. All right, somebody up front here who just did it, raise your hand. I, I got to you, get you to walk me through it. Come on. I'm not going to ask you to come up. I just need, where, right here? All right, one more time. Let her rip. All right. So here I have been living 30 five years, and I, I have never learned how to whistle like it. Maybe a little longer. I've never learned to whistle like that. So walk me through it. How, how do you do it? Can, t tell me. Okay. Okay. You, 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 you mocked me with that last shrug of the shoulders. It did. Okay. Oh, you're so encouraging. All right, do it one more time. I can't even do that. But all right, give me one more whistle. Oh no, let her rip. Come on. Okay, thank you for the first whistling lesson that I've gotten, but it's the first of many because I failed miserably. Um, but I have a standby. I've got a whistle here that actually is in my office, and it's in my office very intentionally. Yes, it's to remind me that I cannot whistle. It's to remind me that I need whistling lessons, but it's more than just a literal whistle. It's, regard, it's reminding me of what Paul teaches us in Philippians. I'll have this whistle in my office throughout our series in Philippians. And it has a lot to do even with our transition. It's a reminder to me of something that the gospel beckons me to do, something that Paul beckons me to do in his letter to the Philippians. It's a reminder of my dad in a lesson that he taught me when I was four years old. We were on vacation up in the mountains of North Carolina, camping. And I was an adventurous, fun-loving four-year-old. Everything was going great until it got dark. Things didn't seem that great at that point. And I was walking along this murky path, this dark path with my dad, and my four-year-old memory tells me it was several miles long and there were monsters on either side. I think in actuality it was a few hundred feet long and it was simply the pathway between the campsite and the washrooms of the campground. People ask me why I like adventuring out in the Rocky Mountains and backpacking and roughing it and I, don't, I like to be in the middle of nowhere and they think it's an adventurous spirit. <laughs> it's actually because I, I camp that way because I'm terrified of the walkways between campsites and campgrounds in some of the, those, those camping areas that they built that are planned communities. The, the, the walkway there just freaks me out. I'd rather be up in the mountains. Well, in this particular evening, I'm walking with my dad, and strange noises are happening. I already told you there are monsters on either side. Those monsters were laughing. Those monsters were laughing, licking their chops. I, I just knew it. You know, the, the branches were kind of over the path. I, I just knew any minute that they were going to come out and, and cut a tree down, push down a tree in front of us, another behind us, trap us, and eat us. And the, 
the only thing that was keeping me, my heart from halting with terror is the vice grip that I had on my dad's hand. And I think I was cutting the circulation off, but I wasn't gonna let go. But even then, I still was becoming more and more terrified. And just at about the point when I was ready to bolt back to our campsite, it's when I heard the sound. It was bizarre. It was a whistle. It was a clear, soothing, confident whistle. It was an upbeat tune. I was trying to trace it. Who would be whistling at a time like this? And I traced it from my ears down into my gut and over my shoulder and down my arm and did my dad's arm and up and then I followed it to his face. And it was my dad. Two things became clear at that moment. Number one, my dad is the one whistling. Number two, my dad has lost his ever-loving mind. Does he not know the danger that we're in? How can you whistle at a time like this? And then I started paying attention and it began to occur to me, but maybe my dad knows something that I don't know. Because his whistle was confident, it was calming me down. And you know what he knew that I didn't know? He knew that the pathway wasn't several miles long, it was only a few hundred feet. He knew that instead of monsters with torches on the side, instead of monsters with hungry stomachs, it was weekend campers with beer guts. <laughs> instead of torches, it was campfires. And the laughter I was, that we were hearing was not laughter of monsters about to eat a dad and his son, but it's just these campers laughing at each other's bad jokes. And it's that whistle that was prompted by his embrace of a greater reality that has stuck with me even to this day. Now let's move from a little four-year-old's visit to the campsites, camping grounds, washrooms to your darkness and mine. We all know darkness, and it's more than our imaginations. It's real. It comes in the form of hurricanes and the aftermath of forest fires in Sonoma County that we need to be praying for, the folks in Puerto Rico that are still, still devastated, the people in Houston from a flood, the people in Mexico from an earthquake. And it comes into our personal lives. It's stress at work, maybe. Conflict with a child. The death of a parent, a glaring lack in a bank account, change in a church. Crisis going on in a group of people, a community of people, a city. The list goes on and on. Your trouble, your darkness right now is different from your darkness right now. And it could be you're not having any darkness right now. And if that's the case, cheer up, it's coming probably this week. <laughs> right? Theologians refer to it as a fallen world. We can't avoid it. We can refer to it as hardship, as pain, as difficulty. 
as suffering. So how do we deal with it? How do you deal with your darkness? Usually we pass through some options early on. The first option is playing defense. We try to avoid all the hardship that we can. And we start convincing ourselves, you know what, maybe I can navigate through this life and not have any bad things happen. Fairly soon though we realize that's, that's a pipe dream. You can't do that, so we move into the next uh, option which really could be denial, for lack of a better term. We just are gonna deny that it's that difficult. We'll put a positive mental attitude on it. And, but that doesn't work after a while, so we move to the next option and where we just distract ourselves. Uh, maybe it's a Netflix, a Netflix binge or shopping spree, or entertainment, or vacation, or getting another bank account balance, uh, an increased bank account balance, or do, we have all these things that we, we try to go to that will distract us from the darkness. But eventually, we realize that's not working, and the, 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 the most difficult place is when we come to the point of just deadening the pain, deadening the pain of being helpless in the presence of darkness. Maybe it's deadening the pain literally through painkillers and addictions or figuratively. But none of those options help us to deal with the darkness in a credible way. So where do we go? What do we do? Do you know what we do? We need whistling lessons. Who do we go to for a whistling lesson? There are a lot of people, but my primary whistling instructor is a guy named Paul. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians. It's in this section of smaller epistles right in the middle of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Go back to the back and ask them afterwards. Let's get into the Word together. Let's begin to devour this. People gave their lives for the Word of God. They still do. Let's eat it. But as we go through Philippians, I told you I'd give you an overview, so here we go. Let me give you a few verses from each of the four chapters. Philippians chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says, I always pray with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, I will continue to rejoice. Verse 25 of the first chapter, he says, I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 18, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. He says, I'll say it again, rejoice. Joy, joy, joy. 16 times in this epistle, the word joy or rejoice comes up. You know, and I would expect that in a book of the Bible. But here's the powerful thing. It's the credibility of Paul because of where his whistling studio is, that whistling of joy that he does. You know where he's teaching it from? He's not teaching it from a music conservatory down in a nice part of town. He's teaching from prison. Vernon gave you the background last week, so I won't dive into just real, real brief if you weren't here. Philippi is the city that these believers were in that Paul is writing to. It's in the northeastern corner of modern-day Greece. It was founded in 356 B.C. by Philip II, who was Alexander the Great's father. It was a staging ground for wars in Macedonia. 
Paul, during his ministry, founded, it's the first European church, this church in Philippi. It was on the beginning of his missionary journeys. Paul had a third missionary journey where he went around Asia. He was taking a collection for the Jerusalem church. It was like a hurricane relief in a sense. They hadn't had a hurricane, but they were struggling. So he was going to all the churches. By the way, the Philippians, he didn't want to bother them. They'd been so generous in the past, but they heard about it and said, we want to be involved as well. So they were generous. When Paul delivered the gift from all of these churches to Jerusalem, Jewish opponents who hated the gospel, hated what Paul was doing, imprisoned him. Threw him into prison with the Roman authorities. Paul was in prison in, in, in jail in Caesarea for two years waiting a trial. All sorts of injustice going on. Finally, Felix uh, bowed out the procurator and Paul appealed to Rome, to Caesar. They shipped him off to Rome, shipwrecked there. Finally gets to Rome, he's under house arrest most probably, meaning a Roman guard is chained to him. Four times in the first chapter, he mentions chains. So even if he is house arrest, he's, he's chained to a Roman guard that I guarantee you did not bathe every day, didn't use breath mints, didn't care about being polite to a prisoner. And he's there, he's, he's not doing well physically. The church in Philippi hears he's not doing well. They hear he's in prison. They send one of their own, a guy named Epaphroditus, 800 miles, about the distance from Chicago to New York, to go visit Paul and they send a gift with Epaphroditus, a monetary gift, to bless him because in that day and age, if you didn't have people from the outside caring for you, you were gonna die in prison. Epaphroditus almost dies on the way, but gets there. And so Paul writes basically a thank you note to the Philippians, but also an exhortation. He knows his community well. The situation Vernon described last week, it was about 10 years. This is about 10 years later when Paul's in prison from when he planted the church and started it. So he's writing to them. He's in the midst. I know I got darkness going on. You've got darkness going on. But Paul's in some huge darkness. And what does he choose to write about? Joy, 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 joy. Rejoice, 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 rejoice. Whistle, whistle, whistle. It's dark, yes, but whistle in the darkness. And it's not a superficial whistle. It's a substantive whistle that engages with a greater reality. Just like my dad engaged with a greater reality in order to whistle, Paul's engaging with a greater reality, and he says, that's what enables me to whistle. Biblical joy is not always a smile. Sometimes I can know joy with tears coming down my face. It's a substantive, deep, abiding sense that Jesus is enough that the gospel is true, and that there is reason to hope in whatever I'm dealing with. So those phrases I read just a moment ago, I'm going to read them again, and you listen to them. This is a guy in, in prison, in sickness. Nothing's going right. He's awaiting news of whether he will live or die, whether he'll be sentenced to death or not. He's been treated unjustly time after time, and he writes over and over. He says, I always pray with joy. I will continue to rejoice. I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. He's teaching us something. He is giving whistling lessons if we'll only pay attention. Because you see, the key to whistling is not being in a wonderful place where all the circumstances are just right. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul says, we are hard pressed on every side. We're hard pressed on every side, darkness, but not crushed, that's whistling. He says, we're perplexed, that's darkness, but not in despair, that's whistling. We're persecuted, that's darkness, but not abandoned, that's whistling. We're struck down, darkness, but we're not destroyed, that's whistling. He's blowing the notion out of the water. And you know what notion it is? That all my circumstances have to be perfect in order to whistle. And that's where most of us go. Oh yeah, I can know joy. I can have joy if, if, I, if my job's fulfilling, my relationships are satisfying, if my bank account is bulging, if my political candidates are to my liking, if my neighborhood is secure, if my health is okay, if my church isn't going through any kind of changes. If my vacations are just right, you know, we get to vacation, we go to our favorite beach, sitting on our favorite beach, we're reading our favorite book, listen to our favorite music on our favorite electronic device with our favorite beverage with the favorite angle of the sun, we're joyful. The sun goes behind the clouds, we finish the book, batteries run out on our iPod, ice cream cone falls into the sand, we're no longer joyful. That's not biblical joy. That's a circumstantial happiness that ebbs and flows. And we, th we, we think, if I can just massage my circumstances enough, I, I can whistle. Paul says, you can whistle regardless of your circumstances. You can know biblical joy. How? Chapter 1. Verse 4, and we'll come back to this next week. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, and here we go, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, G.K. Chesterton's phrase, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian what we're basing the title of this series on. What is the secret of joy? What's the secret of Paul's ability to whistle when it's dark? The gospel, the gospel that's far more than some religious formula. This good news of the gospel that we are in a fallen world that God is not abandoned. That God is, says, I will redeem what I created. I will glorify myself by rescuing fallen creation from your rebellion. And Jesus came and modeled what that original plan of a human being looks like to the glory of God. Not only did he model, he taught it. Not only did he teach it, he died on the cross, fully God, fully man, to pay the penalty for my rebellion so I don't have to pay the penalty myself, to restore me into a right relationship with God, to enable me to then live to the glory of God and engage with this process of Jesus renewing the cosmos to life. And that process one day will be completed. Right now we're in the, middle, in the meantime, and in that meantime, He's assembling communities of his followers all over this planet to welcome, to embrace the hope of the gospel, to live for the glory of God. And in doing so, we're seeing the glory of the Lord once again beginning to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's good news. And Paul says, that's what enables me to whistle. No matter how fallen the world is, I realize it shall not always be so. But in the meantime, I have the hope of the gospel. He says a little bit later in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, whatever happens... What do you think that means when he says whatever happens? I think it means whatever happens, okay? Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
This week I got discouraged. Just realizing a number of things piling up and I just I had a huge to-do list and was discouraged on a number of items and so I, I thought, well, let me re- start reading through Philippians, just do some sermon prep for the week. I know that encourages you. I was incur- discouraged, so I, well, let me do some sermon prep. Uh, I, was just, I was just looking for something. I said, Father, I need you to speak to me. I couldn't get past this verse. Matt, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Meaning, conduct yourself in a manner that engages and embraces the reality that the gospel is true. Matt, the Holy Spirit, it's like if the Holy Spirit was saying this through that. Are you living in a manner worthy of the gospel right now? Worthy of the hope of the gospel? The gospel is an invitation to whistle even when it's dark. You living in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel? No. It's like the Holy Spirit tosses the whistle to me and says, well, then go at it. Each day is a new beginning. And you know what? We ebb and flow in our ability to whistle, but that's, that's the beauty of doing this as a community, of encouraging each other with the hope, of the, the hope of the gospel. I mean, we know the outcome. We know the outcome of each of our individual lives. We know the outcome of us as a church. We know the outcome of all creation. And that's how Paul is able to whistle even when it's dark, to taste joy even in the midst of of circumstances that are less than pleasant. So how, just kind of real practically, how, how do we do it? Here's what I promised you. I told you at the end of the time, I'll give you four hooks with which you can uh, read the entire book of Philippians. So here we go. You know, when Paul wrote this letter, this epistle to the Philippian church, it was quill to parchment and he didn't write in chapters and verses. None of the, 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 the Bible books are written in chapters and verses. Those were added later. Sometimes the way the chapters are divided up in an epistle, they could have been divided up better. In Philippians, it's well done. There's some clear demarcations of subject. What I'm going to do is give you four keys. These are keys that I use. I used them that day when I read that passage. I need to walk once again in a manner worthy of the hope of the gospel. I went back to these four keys. And each of these keys is related to one of the four chapters, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. Each of these keys is not the only thing that chapter is about, but it's one of the main things that that chapter is about. So here we go. What kind of darkness are you grappling with right now personally? Maybe the people around you know what it is, maybe they don't. Could be news from a doctor that nobody knows about, could be a besetting sin, could be a relational conflict, could be job, uh, on and on. Go ahead and bring that darkness front and center. If you wanna refer to the darkness of a church going through change, you can do that. But how grateful we are that we're pointed in the right direction due to a wonderful, wonderful legacy here. So communally, let's look at our darkness. Individually, let's look at our darkness. How do we choose joy? What are the keys to joy? Here's the process that I walk through regularly from Paul giving me whistling lessons. Here we go. Key number one is in chapter one, and it's this. It's all related to the gospel. 
And chapter 1 is all about a gospel priority. Paul was able to whistle because he lived with a gospel priority about his life, which meant this. He lived a life that revolved around Jesus. And he modeled that for them and exhorted the Philippians to together live lives that, that revolve around Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Often, we want Jesus to revolve around us. I want to go live my life and do whatever I want to do. And Jesus, come on, come on, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you get behind here. Come on, I need you to be revolving around me. Take care of this, deal with that. In the 16th century, an astronomer, physicist, translator, brilliant guy named Nicholas Copernicus in Poland revolutionized not only astronomy but philosophy as a result. It's known as the Copernican Revolution. Up to that point, there was a Ptolematic uh, uh, philosophy to the universe and how the planets aligned and flowed, meaning this. Everybody thought up to that point that the Earth was the center of the solar system and everything revolved around the Earth. And Copernicus says, nope. He shifted to a heliocentric, eh, that the sun is the center of the solar system and everything revolves around the sun. I mean, he got vilified. People did not like, Ooh, the earth has got to be the center, everything. No, this is the way it is. One of those joyful moments in my journey or yours is when we have a Copernican shift from expecting Jesus to revolve around us to where we begin to revolve around him. Instead of me doing what's important to me and what's comfortable to me and what's preferable to me and wanting Jesus to revolve around me, and then I get upset when difficult things happen. You know how Paul was able to be joyful? It's because he wasn't expecting Jesus to revolve around him. He was revolving around Jesus. There was a gospel priority to him. Look at what the text says in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He said, that's reason for whistling. The way he's able to say that is because he had a Copernican shift even before Copernicus was around. In his theology, in his walk, go down a few verses, it's still in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is to live revolving around Jesus, loving what he loves, prioritizing what he prioritizes, seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting the other things to take care of themselves. And so often our joy, so often for me this is as far as I need to go. My joy, all of a sudden the whistle comes back because I say, you know what? I've had a me priority instead of a gospel priority, and I've been wanting Jesus to revolve around me, and I'm getting all cranky because he's not doing what I think he should do to prevent me from having hardship when realizing, you know what, my hardship might actually further my embrace of the gospel and the people around me. And all of a sudden, joy, the whistle can start to come back. But there's a second key, it's in chapter 2. How is Paul able to whistle? How is Paul able to exhort the Philippians to whistle? How is he able to exhort you and me to whistle even when it's dark? It involves gospel priority revolving around Christ, but secondly, it involves gospel community where we're reflecting Christ to one another. Gospel community. We're going to talk about this all next week. Joy is taken, this dance of joy is done in community. 
But for now, suffice it to say that he's, he's saying, listen, I'm called into a community that unpacks this gospel, and when I am, begin to reflect Jesus to the people around me, and that becomes my focus, joy all of a sudden begins to take root again. Go, go to chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What do you think he means by that? <laughs> I think he means do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But you know what? Most of us think selfish ambition is the key to our joy. I, I, I want to get, if I can get everybody revolving around me, I'll be happier. He says, no, you won't be. He says, rather in humility, values others, value others above yourselves and not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of the others in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then that wonderful kenosis passage, the ancient hymn of the church that I'm so looking forward, we'll unpack together when we get to that, that part of the text. But he's, he, he's talking about something that Jesus hammered home with the disciples. John 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus says, I've loved you, now reflect that love to the people around you. Do you know what? That unleashes, unlocks joy like nobody's business. So often, I am not able to whistle because I'm not focusing on anybody but me. And I just get deeper in my own pity party. This came out during the hurricane, over and over. You guys, the service teams that we had, the Blue Shirt Brigade, that is one of the brightest moments in, 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 in Northland's story right there. Teams that were going out, that were cutting down limbs and cleaning up yards and tarping roofs. I heard this over and over from people on those teams. They weren't all people whose everything was fine at their house. They were men and women without power. A lot of you didn't have power. You had trees through your roof. You had limbs down. But I heard over and over people say, you know what? I was cleaning up a bit in my yard. I was getting all depressed. And then I decided I'm going to go help clean up somebody else's yard. And lo and behold, the whistle returned. It's just the way joy works. When I began to focus uh, on, on, on you instead of me, it begins to unpack a sense of joy. And that is paramount with us right now as a community. And we'll be talking about this. Part of the, the power of Northland's impact and legacy is we're not just us focused. It's not just about here. So when I talk about us focusing on strengthening the hub of Longwood, it's not just so that for, for, as an end in itself. It is so that the name of Jesus may be made known amongst all peoples and his salvation to all the nations. But it's us getting it together here so that we can focus on others. That's the second key. And I'm truly, in the midst of my, when I'm dealing with some darkness, I have to go through these, all right? Do I have a gospel priority about me right now? Am I revolving around Jesus or expecting him to revolve around me? Secondly, do I have a gospel community in, in, in my scheduling? Am I paying attention to the people around me? Am I reflecting Jesus? Here's the third key, and it, it aligns with chapter 3 of Philippians. It's kind of the third hook, and it's this, gospel intimacy. How was Paul able to whistle in the darkness of a prison? Gospel priority, gospel community, but also gospel intimacy. 
not just revolving around Jesus, not just reflecting him to the people around me, but relating with him in an intimate way. Go back to the text in chapter 3. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Pay, pay, pay attention. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In fact, he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Do you hear that? Do I hear that? What, what are the best things about your life? What are the things that you're just most grateful for, most excited about? What, what are the things that I'm most excited about? You know what Paul says? He says, you know, those are good things. But when compared with the value of walking in intimacy and knowing Jesus, they look like garbage. That'll mess with you. My family, I mean, they were one of the best things in my life. They would look like rubbish compared, and he's not saying they are, he's just saying the comparison, there's no comparison in other words. And when I'm in a pity party, when I'm in the darkness, I'm tempted to just kind of every man for himself. Those are the times that I need to focus most on interacting with Jesus. Actually, you guys get this, nobody else has in any of the services. Martin Luther one time wrote, I have so much to do today. I had so much to do today, I had to spend the first three hours in prayer. There's something to that. Typically, when things start going bad, we get all stressed out, we speed up, and we stop that ultimate priority. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, hey, this is why I came. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I don't think one of us would argue with some of the times that we have grown the most in our intimacy with Jesus were when it was the darkest. That's how Paul was able to whistle. He said, all the good stuff in my life, when compared with knowing Jesus, is, is garbage in terms of value. And again, he's not saying those good things have no value. He's just saying... He's making a metaphorical point to say, knowing Jesus is paramount. That's how you whistle. Here's the fourth key. Chapter one, gospel priority. Chapter two, gospel community. Chapter three, gospel intimacy. And again, it's not all, that's not the only thing that's in these chapters, but it is one hook. Chapter four, is gospel sufficiency. How do I whistle in my darkness? I need to shift and revolve around Jesus instead of expecting him to revolve around me. I need to shift from just focusing on me to reflecting Jesus to you. I need to shift from ignoring Jesus to actually casting all my cares on him, praying about him, and relating with him, and getting to know him. And fourthly, I rely on him like I've never relied on him before. The gospel sufficiency, Jesus, often we don't realize that Jesus is enough until Jesus is all we have. But man, when I start tasting Jesus and experiencing him as all I have, you talk about a whistle. 
Go back to the text in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me what? That wasn't enough of you. I can do all this through him who gives me what? Strength. How much strength will he give? Enough. Uh, they say the manufacturers of Rolls Royces years ago before the internet and all of that, people, potential buyers would want to say, how much horsepower does this thing have? And the salesman would never answer, except for this, enough. You want to know how much horsepower this Rolls has? It has enough. You're never going to need more horsepower than this baby can give you. I don't know what your need is. All I know that Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. And Paul says, that'll enable me to whistle. It'll enable you as a community to whistle. Where there's a gospel priority and there's gospel community and gospel intimacy and gospel sufficiency. And we move out of our, our, our distorted panic and revolve around Jesus and reflect into others and relate with him, but we rely on him as never before. I still can't remember if I've told you this. I've, I've mentioned this in other services. Nobody's helping me. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you. Uh, and I, that might happen more than once, but it'll help me land this plane right now in a way that's consistent with what my heart's burden for you is and what North, burden for Northland is. Abraham Lincoln, during the darkest days of the Civil War, would often go to New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. It's three blocks away from the White House. I've made the walk, actually. I can't get right up to the White House, but I make the walk because the church is still there. His friend, Dr. Phineas Gurley, was the pastor. And he would go on Wednesday nights with an aide or a friend. It's before Secret Service and all of that. And one Wednesday evening, Lincoln, you know, was burdened by so many things. They're walking back. His friend says, so what did you think of Dr. Gurley's sermon? Lincoln said, well, it was masterfully conceived, brilliantly communicated, well-structured and organized. He went on a few other phrases, and so his friend said, so you thought it was a great sermon? Lincoln said, no. No, I didn't. He said, well, I thought you just said it was brilliantly conceived and masterfully presented and so forth. And Lincoln said, I, I did, but it wasn't a great sermon because Dr. Gurley did not ask anything great of us. So let the record stand. In the name of Jesus, based on the hope of the gospel, I'm asking something great of you. And that is to whistle in the dark, whatever your personal darkness is, to embrace the gospel. But I'm exhorting you in the name of Jesus for the glory of Christ in his church called Northland to join together into a symphony of a whistle, to seize the opportunity that the gospel presents us for such a time as this in the life and history and ministry and legacy of Northland Church. Let's stand together and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the hope of the gospel. I thank you for the fact that you are our cornerstone. And I know there's a ton of brokenness, there's a ton of darkness present in this auditorium and online. But may we be men and women who walk in a manner worthy of the gospel's hope.
and embrace the gospel in the midst of our darkness. Enable us to whistle. Enable us to learn to whistle better, more. To do so, yes, in our personal struggles, but to also do that as community. I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for who they are. I thank you for the fact that they are here, ready to dive into this new season in the life of Northland Church. And I pray that it will be a season of whistling, of men and women revolving around your priorities and reflecting you to the community and the world around us, relating with you intimately and relying on you for every need that we have. And I pray that in the name of the one who is our cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's sing this together and proclaim this.